Welcome to Pure Nonfiction, the podcast interviewing documentary filmmakers. I'm your host, Tom Powers, the documentary programmer for the Toronto International Film Festival and artistic director for Doc NYC. On this episode, I talk to Ava DuVernay, the filmmaker best known for Selma. Her new film is a documentary called 13th, now playing on Netflix. The title refers to the Constitution's 13th Amendment that ended slavery only with a loophole clause, except as a punishment for a crime. The film is an essay that traces 150 years of American history to follow the path from the 13th Amendment to our current criminal justice system and its impact on African Americans. Here's a clip from the film with attorney Brian Stevenson, the founder of the Equal Justice Initiative. We had a prison population 300,000 in 1972. Today we have a prison population of 2.3 million. The United States now has the highest rate of incarceration in the world. Ava takes inspiration from other documentaries, such as Sam Pollard's Slavery by Another Name, and from books like The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, who's interviewed in the film. So you see now, suddenly they're an awakening that, oh, perhaps we need to downsize our prison system. It's gotten too expensive. It's gotten out of hand. Um, but the very folks who often express so much concern um, about the cost and the expanse of the system um, are often very unwilling to talk in any serious way about remedying the harm that has been done. The film is a synthesis of many voices, including unexpected ones, like Republican Newt Gingrich. The objective reality is that virtually no one who is white understands the challenge of being black in America. Eva grew up in Compton, California, and graduated from UCLA in 1995 with degrees in English and African American studies. She spent many years as a film publicist until she resolved to tell her own stories. She directed documentaries and two independent fiction films that found champions on the festival circuit. Her second feature, Middle of Nowhere, deals with a marriage tested by a prison sentence. But it was Selma, her drama about the 1965 voting rights march in Alabama, that elevated her career. It was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Motion Picture in 2015. In the past year, Ava created the TV series Queen Sugar for the OWN Network and directed a film for the new Smithsonian Museum of African American History. She is the first black woman director to receive a budget of over $100 million for the Disney film A Wrinkle in Time that goes into production this fall. Ava is outspoken about creating more opportunities in film for women and people of color. She even created her own distribution company, Array, dedicated to those filmmakers. But she doesn't like the buzzword diversity. She told the New York Times, the word is too unemotional. She said, and I quote, inclusion is a much more emotional word. We've all been excluded, so we know what inclusion means. We haven't been undiversed. It's an emotional issue that's been given a really unemotional word, end quote. Her documentary 13th debuted on the opening night of the New York Film Festival on September 30th. It was a night of inclusion firsts, the first time in the festival's 54 years that it opened with a black woman director or with a documentary. 
Oprah Winfrey, or O.W. as Ava calls her, was in the audience, along with the musician Common, who composed a song for the film. Two days later, on a Sunday morning, I sat down with Ava in a hotel room overlooking Central Park. She was doing the kind of press junket more common for a Hollywood film than a documentary, with back-to-back interviews tightly slotted. You'll hear her voice was getting hoarse, but her spirit was fully engaged. When you were growing up in Compton, was your family political at all? Uh, not forward-facing political in the sense of what we define that to be in, in the mainstream, but certainly nationalists in the sense of having a great sense of pride in being Black and giving that to me. I saw an interview where you described getting the chance to go to UCLA and that that wasn't a common experience uh, from your neighborhood. How did you get the opportunity to do that? I was good in school <laughs> and um, really, really wanted, wanted to go there. I, I don't know why USC didn't appeal to me, um, was looking for. I, my, I originally wanted to go to Spelman, which was a historically black college. I didn't get in there. wasn't good enough in school. So I didn't get into Spelman, but I got into UCLA and was happy to be close to the family, but was also very aware that I was joining a very small tribe of people, a very small black community there at that school. Um, and, uh, and yeah, just in general, the, the admission rates at that time, um, uh, it was it was a smaller community than it should be. It's even smaller now. So, um, so yeah, I knew at the time that you know, I, was, I was in a in a um, in a in a unique group. And from what I've read, it sounds like at UCLA you were unlocking a lot of ideas yeah. for yourself. What were some of those doors that opened for you? You know, growing up in Compton, Linwood, Long Beach, communities of color, black people, brown people, all around. I was experiencing. The things that I later studied and was given historical and cultural context for. So that was a big, you know, aha moment, as my friend O.W. says. Um, it was, you know, reading uh, Fanon, Asata Shakur, um, you know, about black liberation theory and being able to very clearly connect what they were saying with how I grew up and where I lived. You know, when I grew up, grew up and would see a cop, you know, in, in many communities, when you see a police officer, you think safety and help. Uh, in my community, when you see a police officer, you do not think safety and you do not think help. It's not the first thing that comes into your mind. It's a big shift in worldview, you know, and helping people to understand where does all this come from? You know, it's, it's you know, completely different ways to see the same figure. And so experiencing that, when you get to UCLA and you read, you get cultural context, philosophy, theory, um, you know, you're, you're learning about, you know, generational trauma, you're learning about your place in all of it. Um, it really helped. It was formative for me. And, um, and it's probably why I made a film like 13th. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. At the New York Film Festival uh, the other night, you talked about how when In 1992, when Bill Clinton was being elected, um, uh, there was a narrative of him being the first black president and uh, and that at the time you kind of accepted that narrative that that you didn't weren't looking at it through uh, a filter of, I don't know, uh, Ricky Ray Rector's uh, execution or uh, or other things like that. When did you start to rethink that? You know, it was a young person that was one of the first presidential elections that I participated in. And, you know, I was hook, line and sinker for the, you know, cool white dude playing saxophone on a city 
oh, you know, that worked for me. Um, saying the right things, but not reading the the small print, the fine print. You know, um, you know, the 1994 crime bill was not a surprise when you go back and look at what he was saying in his stump speech. And yet, you know, it took a lot of people in the black and brown communities who were affected by it off guard. Um, folks like me who are not engaging critically with the issues or the candidates. And so, um, you know, it started to change with me just as you get older. You start actually not listen to the hip hop station all the time, but then you find yourself listening to NPR. And that's the day you realize I'm older. Right. But <laughs> that happened to me maybe about 10 years ago. Right. I'm driving to work, going to the set. And I did not want to hear the latest song. I wanted to hear Terry Gross. That's the point where you know I'm older. And so that is when, you know, I started to connect the dots. Wow, you know. Yeah, I'm really fascinated by how people make those shifts. Yeah, uh, I think it, it just comes through time, you know. And also, you know, in the midst of, I mean, 1994 crime bill, the horrors of it, um, the, re- the repercussions of it, the real world ramifications of, the, of that bill, I mean, well, it did, were not apparent at the time that it was passed. I mean, it took time to militarize small towns, <laughs> You know, it took time for, you know, the prison population to explode, you know, in the way that it did um, and for people to be locked up and tried and actually put in prison. So, you know, um, you know, as it became clear, um, as time passed, it became crystal clear and important that we share what happened so it doesn't happen again. Your uh, first feature length documentary is called This is the Life um, uh, about. Only the- you know that, Tom. <laughs> Only the doc guy knows about that little doc. Wow. This is the Life documents the alternative hip hop scene that sprung up in the 1990s in South Central Los Angeles. The hub was a health food store called The Good Life that held a weekly open mic night. Ava herself performed there in a group called Figures of Speech. Here are voices from the film. You know what? The good life was like an escape. A release. You know, it it felt like the ultimate meditation. Something like that couldn't happen in any other city, in any other part of the world, at any other time. It was perfect. When you walked into the place, you basically, it was like home. For sure, it was college. Um, Yeah, and it was also church. It was also temple. I mean, you know, um, I learned so much in that and the energy that was created by the place spread out sort of worldwide. And it's as important as the Seattle music scene was, the punk rock scene. It's as important as the New York punk scene. It's as important as the Southern hip hop movement. It's as, it's as important as all of that, you know? And it's, a, and it's like, but out of all those scenes, this is the one that doesn't get any light. So what did you learn making that film? Oh, that was my film school. That was my film school, the very first film I made, a documentary called This is the Life I Made with $10,000. Not like I had $10,000. I did it check to check. And every paycheck, you know, I, I was doing publicity. Um, and when I would get paid, I would put it into the doc. And, um, you know, had never picked up a camera, had never edited uh, none of that, but I learned everything on that documentary. And it was a story that was close to my heart. I knew the subjects. I was passionate about it. Uh, it's about a small collective of, of young artists, black black kids in South Central L.A. who um, were making music uh, in a small health food store in South Central Los Angeles at the same time that um, big artists from South Central Los Angeles like N.W.A. were all that America was talking about. 
America chose to focus on the violence and uh, and not on the beautiful music that was being made by other kids in South Central. So that film... And you were part of that scene. I was. Oh. And th- that film chronicled them and that music and what other people from that community were trying to say at the time and really tries to answer the question of why did the media choose one over the other. And so, um, so yeah, that was, uh, you know, like I say, film school, everything... Uh, and also where I was testing out whether or not I w- could or wanted to try to continue to pursue filmmaking. And that's also where I caught the bug. So you, as much as anyone, uh, understands that there, there's two parts of filmmaking. There's making the film and then there's getting it out there uh, to the audience. Yes. And and I wonder on This is the Life, what you learned about that process of getting out to there to an audience. Yeah, this is the life. I was a publicist and I knew how to publicize films. Um, I knew nothing about distribution, uh, but I knew that no one was going to want to distribute, you know, a small doc about. I mean, we were at a time when docs, it was nothing like now. You know, there's a viable, you know, industry for, you know, um, different voices in the doc space. Um, This is a very crudely made, I'll just say, in a not even a disparaging way. I mean, handmade, very low cost doc about black people in a black pet place with a black voice. Not a big uh, market for that. (laughs) And so um, I decided to distribute it myself. It was the first time playing with self-distribution. I was taken around to the beautiful black film festivals all around the country um, and getting a tremendous response. And um, and yeah, we we distributed it hand by hand. I remember calling record stores and bookstores and trying to get it placed. Um, There was no Netflix at the time. There was no iTunes. Um, Just trying to kind of peddle my wares as I could and falling in love with that process and eventually um, forming my own distribution collective. And my first um, three films were all self-distributed. Um, this is my fourth doc. Um, but after This is the Life, I made two narrative films. Um, I Will Follow in Middle of Nowhere. And I distributed those with Array. I've always been impressed by a kind of indomitable optimism that you have. I mean, you're, you're quick to analyze what the problems are, but you, you know, you aren't sitting around complaining that uh, that things aren't happening. You're a doer. Mm. And I wonder where you get that from. Mm. Probably my, my parents, my father, who just passed away six months ago, hardworking man. <laughs> you know, hey, Pop, how are you? Can't complain. But God, I heard, I heard it was a really rough day at work. Nope, can't complain. I'm what did he do? We, I'm here with Breathing. He had his own company, a carpet and flooring business. You know, small, I'd see him go out to work every morning before the sun was up doing his work for his business, right? Small business, you know, um, you know, hard times and good times, ups and downs of small entrepreneurship, but a small black businessman with his truck and his tools in the back, go out with just a, maybe a crew of two people to do a whole building on his hands and knees, putting in carpet, putting in flooring, um, you know, taught me things about, about business, you know, don't take credit. You know, I didn't have credit cards until I was like 30 years old. Until my biz- uh, my bookkeeper said, you have no credit. You're a successful publicist and you have no credit. Nope, my dad told me, never use credit. Your dad told you don't have credit? I mean, my dad's from Lowndes County, Alabama. So he just, you know, don't take anything that you haven't worked for. So that mentality, I think, um, is just one that, that that is deeply in me from him. And then my mother from Compton, California, very charismatic woman. Very charismatic. I would see my mother walk into a room and it's like sunshine walked in, you know, mm-hmm. um, beautiful and lovely and um, but also just very much a just believed in work. 
Um, and, um, and I think part of the thought about believing in work is that they've never had the opportunity to have anything handed to them. You know what I mean? You know, they're, 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 nothing was given. So, um, and that's the case for a lot of, a lot of people in this country, particularly people of color. So you got to work to get what you need. And I think that's a part of, uh, uh, maybe why I, I don't think of anything from a place of privilege, like it should be mine. Right. Um, you know, and maybe that's where some of the positivity comes from, um, you know, because I believe in myself. So if I want it, I can work and I can figure it out. It may not be within the standard power structures, but, you know, I can distribute my film. I can figure out a way to make my movie. I can figure out a way to help other people make their movies and distribute their films. You know, I also sense that you enjoy the process of connecting films to audiences. Oh, I love that. Which which some filmmakers don't. Some filmmakers kind of want to be in their, you know, edit room making their film. Oh, no, because that's the part of the filmmaking to me. And I was a publicist for many years. And the thing that always surprised me, filmmakers, serious filmmakers. And I work with some big filmmakers. Serious filmmakers, filmmakers who had made wonderful films killed for, bled for, ranted and raved for the integrity of their film. And then they hand it over to someone and say, uh, yeah, good luck. And they turn away. They don't know that part of it. And I would just stand there like, you've just given me your child, a stranger. You've put your infant child in my hand that you gave birth to. And you are trusting me to do the right thing for it? I've seen mighty filmmakers sit in marketing meetings and shrink down to little, be, be little children, right? Not even know what's going on in the marketing and distribution of their film. I just never wanted to be that. I never wanted to be that, so I, I um, take great joy in the fact that I know how to do those things, and I want other people to know how to do them, so I love that, and I also love audiences, truly. More than any award, award shows, red carpet. Red carpets don't mean anything to me. I used to roll the red carpet on my own hands and knees as a publicist. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I, I used to call, you know, people go on the red carpets and they think, ah, oh, all these photographers are here to, for me. No, a publicist sat down, called all of them, sent a fax, emailed, said, get your ass on the carpet and take a picture of my client. That's what happened, right? So I walk out there and I know what it is. I know what the award shows are. I know what it looks like from my days before doesn't mean as much to me as whenever I walk into an audience, literally, when I walked into that nine o'clock screening at Lincoln Center on opening night of 13th and saw people sitting there, that's a huge space. I'd it's never been in room. there before that day. <laughs> Alice Tully Hall never walked in there before that day. My first time seeing it was when I walked out on the stage. Literally, it was like Eccles at Sundance. It's just a huge, huge space. And... um and feeling like, wow, these people came to see what came out of my mind, audience, that is a huge, huge thing to me. And I'm always surprised when I walk out and see people. Truly, even when I went to the press screening, I walked in, I was like, wow, there's a lot of people here in Walter Reed. So anyway, I love audience and um, yeah, long way to say it's something that's really important to me. We'll be back in a minute with more of Ava DuVernay talking about 13th. Remember to mark your calendars for Doc NYC, America's largest documentary festival, taking place November 10th to 17th in New York City. You can choose from over 250 films and panels. One highlight is the Doc NYC shortlist, where we pick 15 documentaries that we predict will be contenders in awards season. They include many films that have been covered on pure nonfiction, including Dawn Porter's Trapped, 
Ezra Edelman's O.J. Made in America, and Ava DuVernay's 13th. Most screenings are followed by a Q&A with the filmmakers or special guests. To learn more about getting a pass or tickets, go to docnyc.net. Now let's get back to talking about the 13th with Ava DuVernay. Here's a clip from the film with Van Jones, the CNN contributor and author of Rebuild the Dream. We thought, I mean, they, they called the end of slavery Jubilee. We thought we were done then. And then you had 100 years of Jim Crow terror and lynching. Dr. King, these guys come on the scene, Ella Jo Baker, Fannie Lou Hamer. We get the bills passed to vote, and then they break out the handcuffs. Label you felon, you can't vote or get a job. So we don't know what the next iteration of this will be, but it will be. It will be. And we will have to be vigilant. I want to ask you about a couple of your collaborators, starting with Spencer Averick, who has been editing your film since This is the Life, all through uh, Middle of Nowhere, Selma, and now uh, 13th. So uh, who is Spencer Averick, and and why do you have such a special rapport? Okay, I officially love you, Tom Powers, forever, because you asked me about Spencer Averick. I love him. He's my editor. He's one of my great, great friends of my whole life. You know, he's a light to me. He's who I sit in the dark with for hours and hours and hours trying to make something, you know what I mean? Trying to make something to put my name on, our name on, and say this is an offering from me to, you know what I mean? It's it's your film. And I always it always astounds me when I talk to filmmakers and they don't enjoy the editing process because it's my favorite part, hands down, more than the screenwriting, yuck, more than even the glorious feeling of being on set. I cannot wait to get in a dark room with Spencer and start looking at that footage and figuring out how to tell the story. It's really, um, um, I don't know, it's it's like a sacred space to me. And it's because he's there. Young guy, I met him because uh, I needed an editor who would work for cheap. Um, a, a woman I know said, yeah, I know a guy who says he's an editor. I mean, look at, look at a guy who says he's an editor. This is how you find that you're a great editor. <laughs> yeah, I know a guy who says he's an editor. I was like, great, because I'm desperate. Will he edit? This is the life. Yeah, I only got $1,500. Yeah, no, he's just, he's just trying to get in and do some stuff. Meet this guy. He walks in. I'm literally thinking, can he leave the house without his mother? Like, this kid is so young. <laughs> he looks so young. And I gave him the audacity, <laughs> the audacity of having $1,500 and asking someone to edit a whole feature-length doc and then saying, let me give you some raw footage and see what you do with it. The audacity of me to ask that, but I did. It's your I baby. Gave, <laughs> it was my baby. I gave him some raw footage. He came back. He shined it up. He made it just gleam. He dazzled me. And we've been together ever since, you know, and we've grown together. We've learned to make films together, you know, from This Is The Life, you know, to... So is he someone who has a similar background to you or no, a different background? No, no. He is a young white man from Petaluma, California. <laughs> I don't know where that is. It is sounds like what it is. You're from a town called Petaluma. It sounds pretty, and it is. He has a beautiful family. 
Uh, and I had a beautiful family, but we are completely different people. When we stand together and walk around, people look at us like, how are you two connected? You know, but I feel like he's literally my brother from another mother. We have the same mind. The, the 13th, I, I asked him to share a writing credit with me. Um, the 13th, I asked him to take a producer credit. He's like, Ava, why, why? Because we did this together. You know, the film, when you see it, it's really, you know, if there's, it's, I can't, you know, I can't say the, what's masterful about it as it pertains to me, but he did a badass job on the editing. I mean, this material, the tone, the pace to me um, is, is his best work um, because I knew what we had to wrangle. Such a huge topic of such scope. Yeah, talk to me about the pacing, because you described that you started with a cut that was super fast, and then you came to, then you slowed it down, and now you've found found the middle. He found the right pace and tone. We worked together to try to figure it out. It took a while. You know, we have a four-hour cut. We have, like, a a Speedy Gonzalez super speed cut that's just, you know, things are whizzing by, and you can't even grasp it. Uh, You have um, the the overcorrection of that cut when we got notes that it was too fast from friends to something that's so slow that you can barely watch it. And so it's just about finding the right times to push on the gas, let go of the gas. Um, You know, and as all documentarians know, that takes time. Um, But with so much footage and with such emotional subject matter, with very violent images, racist images that we were showing and dealing with every day, it was a self-care issue in the editing room, you know, really tough stuff to look at. But also we knew we had the challenge of keeping people's attention through a virtual tour of racism is basically what we were doing, trying to take you from 1865 abolition of slavery to now in a hundred minutes and do that in a way that, you know, was meaningful and emotionally resonant, um, you know, was, uh, was a great challenge. And I'm happy to, that I had him by my side. Let me ask about your cinematographers. One of the building blocks. Oh for my Doc- gosh, I love Tom Powers. He's asking me real questions about <laughs> filmmaking. Truly, I've been junketing and I just, you know, the questions. Well, I enjoy it. Thank <laughs> you. One of the building blocks of Documentary filmmaking is the interview and uh, feels like you were making some real deliberate choices about how to frame interviews Mm -hmm. uh, in this film. And I'd love to hear what the thinking was. Yeah, I mean, there was a time when I thought, oh, you know, we need to make this a little bit splashy or or more intimate um, or we need to, you know, do this and that to keep people's attention. You know, it was a time I was going to try to have a verite element, you know, follow an incarcerated person, follow a family, try to follow an executive, um, you know, uh, within a prison or an official. And really what it got down to is I just became fascinated by the quote unquote talking heads, the analysts, the interviewees, you know, it was really fortunate that some of the foremost people in the space are also incredibly charismatic. You know, Michelle Alexander, when she starts talking, you're not looking away. When Van Jones starts talking, when Brian Stevenson starts talking, he ain't looking away. I could watch a Van Jones channel 24 Literally, hours. Literally, no. <laughs> right? You know, and these these are the, you know, really, really deep, deep roster of madly, insanely smart people on specific topics who are just insanely watchable. And so there was no need for the rest of it. That was the plan at one point, oh, we need to veer off and do this. And that was really coming from a place of, I think, anxiety about, will people watch this? Can I keep people interested? And the interviews were, was, was, was the bedrock of it. And so, yeah, and the idea about where we um, interviewed them, I just wanted every backdrop to be a place that kind of denoted labor. Hmm. So it's a lot of rock, steel, you know, glass, like, you know, um, spaces that feel um, industrial um, to connect with the prison industrial complex in that 
generations of free black labor that has built this country, made a lot of people rich. Um, and then, yeah, so we just kept the, 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 the framing, I don't know, pretty simple, some things where we, we, um, we, we have subjects off center, nothing too crazy there with a dolly track on the second camera um, and just, um, and, you know, worked it from there. Now, some of these interviews you're approaching, like Michelle Alexander or Brian Stevenson, they've got books and you're kind of extracting some of the knowledge from yeah. uh, those books. Were there other interviews that were more exploratory? Yeah, I'd say so. I think, um, you know, I know very well and, you know, many people who love documentary know that, you know, I'm 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 extracting information from about, you know, six really great docs. Definitely Sam Pollard, Slavery by Another Name. We have a six minute kind of synopsis of what he does. Or Gideon's Army. Yeah, Gideon's Army. A little piece about that because I saw that in her piece. You know, the books... Brian Stevenson's Just Mercy, Michelle Alexander's New Jim Crow. We can go on a set of the, the, these materials that are kind of the the starter kit to get into these issues. And yet we need an even starter starter kit to that kit, right? Something where you put it all in one place. There's something about seeing a doc that's all about plea bargains and, and public public defenders. There's something about seeing a doc that's all about reconstruction and, and black codes and and um, and how slavery uh, uh, was really reenacted during that time. And individually, I think there's something about seeing them back all back to back. Mm. It's like seeing connecting the dots. Connecting the dots in one piece um, did something to me that I didn't even really expect. You know, a lot of people who know all of this information. Wow, but you see it all together and you paint it, see a different picture. It's like seeing the color red on a wall by itself, you know, and then you put it with a bunch of different colors and it creates a different picture. And so I think um, that's what that's what this does here. Yeah. So were there interviews where you thought I was not expecting him to say that or her to say that? Um, No, Um, you're prepped. I, yes, I was very prepared. Even with Newt Gingrich, a lot of people were surprised at what he says. But he'd been talking about that for a while in smaller circles at smaller conferences. So I had expected him to say some of the things that he said. Um, I mean, yeah, certainly you sit down with people and they go deeper um, when you're talking with them for three hours than anything that you've read. But there wasn't any big surprise. Mm-hmm. You have talked about your intentional framing in this film to not deliver some easy answers at the end to not uh, say, well, this is how it's going to get better. Um, Can you talk about that decision? Yeah, no, it was interesting. Last night I was having dinner uh, with uh, with Common and who has the final song in the film. When I walked up to the table, he was talking to two white women that were sitting next to him. But out of all the people in New York City, he sits down two women who had just been at the screening last night (laughs) in a little dive place. And they were talking about the 13th. And so we got sat down and we started talking to these women. And the woman said, I was just, I thought it was great. I was just surprised you didn't offer any solutions at the end. And I said, it's not for me to offer the solutions. It's for me to just offer you the information. You have to make the solution. That's exactly what this was. I mean, we had had a section with solutions. And it just felt like I let everyone off the hook at the end. You know, our final credit sequence was all about everyone in the documentary talking about solutions, talking about the organization they were with, how they're changing things. And you and you at the end of that cut, you walked out and you think, wow, good. They've got it. They're going to take care of it. Okay, good. There's some good people on it that I just spent 100 minutes with. I just I hated it. You know what I mean? I hated it. So I cut that part out because I need people to be on the hook for this. Because at this point, after you learn what you learned in the 13th, in 13th, you know, in this case, silence is consent. You know, 
If you're a forward-thinking person and now you know what you didn't know and you're affected by it and hurt by it and pained by it and feel that it's unjust, then you must do something. And that doesn't necessarily mean protest, you know, call your congressman, whatever. This is something in this that's about us and the way that we treat each other and regard each other. What do you think when you hear the word criminal? You know, how do you regard Black Lives Matter movement when you hear that the gas station was burned down? Oh, my gosh, they're burning public property. Or now do you think back and think, wow. You know, there's some context to this. There's some, some historical backbone to, you know, this, this new life that's being birthed through Black Lives Matter. So that's the hope. I want to ask you about uh, Lisa Nishimura uh, from uh, Netflix. OK, wait a minute. Tom Powers. <laughs> You're asking about people who are critical to this process that no one else thinks about. And I thank you. Finish the question so I can answer. I'm ready. So Lisa Nishimura is the executive at Netflix who came to you before you'd even begun Selma uh, and asked you uh, about doing a documentary project. Lisa Nishimura, a guardian angel of this project, the reason why this project exists. These are all things I had in my head, had in my heart. As you can tell, I'm passionate about it. But, you know, after some uh, opportunities coming my way from Marvel to HBO, all the the opportunities and... uh, And Lisa was always there saying, if you ever want to make a doc, if you ever want to make a doc. And I was trying to figure out what to do after Selma and thinking, wow, there's no path I can look at. No black woman I can ask, what did you, what did you do? What do I do now? What What do I do now? What's next? And trying to have to figure that out for myself and thinking in a moment of just getting still and things coming at me thinking, I should do what my dad said, do the work, do the work that I love, focus on the work that I love, the story I really want to tell. And so that was a TV show called Queen Sugar, but that was also um, making a small doc very quietly. They call it a secret. It wasn't a secret. It was just quiet. And, um, and, and, t- and telling a story that meant something to me. Her support of this is um, just unwavering and unending. I've never been in a situation where someone says, hey, here's a check. And, you know, see what happens. This is literally what it was. I said, is there a time period? Is there, well, you know, you, you got you to gotta take your time with it. You got to see what's out there. No outline. Because I didn't know what it was going to be. I just could talk to her like this about it and say, this is what I want to do. And she said, we need to do this. You, you do, go do it. Go find it. I've heard and, a lot of people on this podcast, documentary filmmakers, talk about the most important ingredient to the work is time. Is having time. the time. And not having that deadline and just having that support. And even at the end, I just have to say one thing about her, even in this very kind of frenzied in race to get the film done by a certain time because I wanted it out before the elections. I was I was walking out of a of a of a we were just checking checking some picture some images in the picture for their quality. So we projected and we were walking out of there and she says, You're almost finished. Is there anything you didn't get? Anything that you want to do? And I said, you know what I you know, we're, we're over, but we're not over budget. We're, we're at budget right now. Yeah, there's always little things I'd want to do, but it's fine. It's it's good. And she said, no, but I mean, if you if you had a little bit more, what would you do? I said, you know, I do a little bit of sound design. You know, I, 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 I can't hear some things just right. You know, it's old, old footage we're dealing with. You know, I'd, I'd love to do a little bit of that, but, you know, don't need it. It's fine. Literally, the next day I got a call, five sound design sessions set up if I wanted to go over uh, to Deluxe and work on it. It's just like that's the kind of extra mile that she did throughout the process. So anyway, I know I'm over-talking about her, but uh, it's a rare, rare thing. And uh, I think it should be celebrated. It's important to credit the people who do those things. Absolutely, because they're too few and far between. 
Ava, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. I really enjoyed this. Ava DuVernay's documentary 13th is now playing on Netflix. Pure Nonfiction is distributed by the TIFF Podcast Network. Thanks to our team, series producer Michael Scotty Jr., sound mixer Kyle Murphy, web designer Cross Strategy, marketing coordinator Sarah Modo, social media master Jordan Smith, and executive producer Rafaela Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at T-H-O-M Powers. If you're in New York City this fall, you'll find me on Tuesday nights at IFC Center for Stranger Than Fiction, presenting a retrospective of documentaries by Jonathan Demme running through November 1st. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe on iTunes. We'll be back next Thursday. Until then, you can read our show notes, learn about live events, and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net.